Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Rusty Scheiber. Rusty is the National Wheelchair Curling Coach for Team USA and has been for, I believe, going on 14 years by the looks of things. He has attended two Winter Paralympic Games with Team USA uh, 2018 and 2022. So welcome to the podcast, Rusty. Well, thank you very much, Liz. It's, it's, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's great. I've been looking forward to having a chat about wheelchair curling and, and what it's all about. So I'm glad I've got one of the gurus <laughs> of that on the podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into coaching wheelchair curling? Yeah, I, I certainly can. Uh, you know, it Curling has been in our family here for quite some time. Back in 1992, after I left the Air Force, my wife and I moved to central Wisconsin, which was where our home was. Mm-hmm. And curling is, is a, a kind of a culture here in central Wisconsin. So we started curling at the local curling club. Now, age-wise, is putting us at about 30, 32, right in that, that, uh, that age. And we just curled locally. As our kids started to get on the ice, which is in about five, six, right at that time frame, mm-hmm. your parents get pulled right along with their kids. And at this point, then I, I kind of got involved in, in assisting with the junior program and eventually running the junior program in our local curling club, which kept me at the club. Mm-hmm. Then as the kids got older, they got into the national junior ranks of curlers. And, and I ended up coaching my daughter and her team and followed her through for quite some time. I ended up crossing paths with a mentor coach back in those days, Steve Brown, who was coaching the uh, National Wheelchair Curling Team. And he asked me on one of those years, which I believe was back in 2008, whether I could come give him a hand on his team as he had the Olympic trials, which his son and daughter were both curling in. And they conflicted with the world championship. So I needed someone to give him a hand that year. (laughs) And I came aboard and I've been on ever since. Wow. And were you a coach before that? Well, I tell you, I, w- I don't want to say a, a coach before that, but a coach during that, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the kids were coming up, I, I uh, originally started in, in curling when they were quite small as more of an instructor. Then we yeah. made the transition as the kids went into other sports. They were very active. Made the transition into getting into coaching. The original coaching, I think I probably did, was when the kids jumped into softball. And these were my daughters and I coached them in softball all the way through probably till they were about 16 or so. Mm-hmm. And this was also now while I was doing the, the curling. So, so, you know, it's one of these stories that I, I, I think is quite repeatable that you end up jumping in as a family mm-hmm. and where yeah. it takes you, it, this is where it took me and it it's, was a great trip. Awesome. And so can you tell us what curling is and specifically, obviously, what wheelchair curling is? As a sure. Curling is an ice sport. It's a winter and a Paralympic winter sport. And it's that silly little sport where you throw the rock down the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, truly, people say it is, you know, the common, it's, it's chess or it is a shuffleboard on ice. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of both of them. Curling is a strategy sport. It's the finesse is, is placing the stones where you strategically need them. In the able-bodied game, you have sweepers who can assist making some corrections to the course of the stone. They can carry it a little farther, have it curl a little more, curl a little less. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get to the wheelchair sport, it's identical 
to the able-bodied sport with the exception that you are starting from a wheelchair, you're mm-hmm. starting from a stationary position, and you don't have the sweepers to make any corrections. Right. So it's, it's a wonderful sport. It's one of those sports that able-bodied and adaptive athletes can play together against mm-hmm. each other on equal footing. It's pretty, pretty incredible. And so without having a sweeper, that means that you can't alter the course of the stone whilst it's in transit to Correct. the other end. And so Correct. does that mean that the skill and the technique of how you place that stone is even more important? It, it really is. It really, really is. It's, it has to be absolutely perfect. Mm. That's the bottom line. In, in wheelchair curling with no correction, you don't have that, that sweeper who can take it another four or five or six or eight feet, mm-hmm. uh, bring it in a little bit or take it out a little bit. In wheelchair curling, it has to be perfect. Yeah. And so the field of play is the same as mm-hmm. able body curling and the number of stones that are put down. How many ends are played? Hey, in in the international play, in, in world play, we play eight ends in the wheelchair curling. This is where there is one slight difference when you look at the men's, the women's, the mixed doubles at the uh, able-bodied. In a world caliber game, they will play 10 ends. Right. Uh, so it's about a half an hour longer. We play eight. Mm-hmm. And so roughly how long would a, a match, do you call it a match or a game? Yeah, yeah. You can call it a game, can call it a match. Any, mm-hmm. They're both acceptable. You know, you're looking at 15 minutes an end with a short intermission between the fourth end break for wheelchair, fifth end break for able-bodied. So for a, a wheelchair curling game, you're looking at two and a half hours, just, just a little bit before that, add on another half an hour for an able-bodied game. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so the classifications within wheelchair curling and, and mm-hmm. the classes, who's, who's eligible to compete in wheelchair curling? Yeah. Wheelchair curling is, is really based upon having a lower level disability. You're going to be uh, an amputee. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a condition which is causing uh, decreased strength in your lower extremities, mm-hmm. uh, the coordination of your lower extremities. So it, it is a, a classification system that is very, very, very concentrated mm-hmm. on deficiencies in the lower extremities. But it's not just for individuals who are normally ambulant in a wheelchair on a day-to-day basis, like someone with a spinal cord injury. It actually goes a little wider than that. It's just that everyone competes in a wheelchair, correct? That, that is correct. You know, there, there's, there's several conditions that, that could have you ambulatory, but you're going to have to have that strength deficiency mm-hmm. to, to actually uh, to, to classify. But but yes, as you said, the, the common playing piece is the wheelchair. Yeah. Yes, you're yep. correct. Okay. And what would you say are the physiological demands? Like it, it's obviously a very skill-oriented sport, but it, it's played over the course of two to two and a half hours. So mm-hmm. from a physiological perspective, how much does fitness and strength play into that strength is critical in the uh the able-bodied game the power for for accelerating the stone down the sheet is coming from your big thigh muscles so big muscles are are firing you out of the hack when you're looking at the uh the game of wheelchair curling it's really looking at your back and your shoulders so a totally different set so you're looking at an upper body strength Mm -hmm. when you've got the the big men out there obviously they've 
simply being larger and being much stronger. They, they can really, really bring a stone down the ice, but we're a co-ed sport. So mm-hmm. we are, a, I guess that's something we should throw in. We are a co-ed sport. So you'll have, you must have your, we're both genders playing on the ice at the same time, a minimum of one of the opposite gender at any given time. So right. there is not a, there is not a limitation for, for those with less upper body strength, but, but they're going to have to have the ability to, to slide a 42 pound stone down the ice, 124 feet and, and have that stone come to rest. Now there's different types of shots. There's, mm-hmm. there's the, the draw shot, if they will, which are the shots that actually come to rest, whether they come as a guard in front of the playing area, and then you work around them or they come into the house, the, which is those rings, the, the bullseye, if, if you will, those are, we'll call, call those both draw shots. The takeout shot where you're trying to knock stones off, that's where the strength really, really comes in for the upper body. The, the draw shot is simply finesse. And how many players are there on a team? Yeah, uh, excellent question. A team that is playing on the ice will have four players. Mm-hmm. Each team at the world level, uh, the Paralympic Games, for example, and the World Championships also will have a fifth player sometimes referred to as an alternate, but I refer to it as a fifth player because there's as much of a member of the team as the other four that are out there. The players are each delivering two stones right? and they're alternating with the opposition, red right. stone one, yellow stone one. And that same person from red will throw one, then yellow will throw one. Then they'll switch for the seconds, they'll switch for the thirds, and then they'll switch for the skips. Mm-hmm. At the end of the ice, is, is the skip, which I just mentioned. The skip is who's actually given the strategy. He's calling the game. He's the mastermind of what's trying to happen. He's telling people what they, they need to do, where he wants his stones. He's reading the ice, giving them a target mm-hmm. uh, to throw, to, to, to deliver at. And then at the, the end of the end, uh, the fourth player will be that skip. They'll alternate. Right. He'll okay. come down to deliver his two stones. And, yeah. and then one of the players will go down and take his spot. Okay, so each of those four players is delivering so eight mm-hmm. stones per round, and there's mm-hmm. eight rounds. So, but they they're a skip for two of them. So there's like six rounds of two stones each over a two and a half hour period. So it's a it's a strength power without fatigue kind of sport. Correct. Would, is Correct. that the best Correct. way of describing it? Yeah, you're gonna. It's a definitely a precision sport. It, it's mm-hmm. not a sport that requires great endurance. Yeah. Okay. And so, what does your training look like? I tell you, training is, you know, it it depends upon the level of your team. Which is yep. for our team, we we've gone through following the Pyeongchang in 2018. Of the five players we had on the team, four of them retired. Mm-hmm. So, so I tell you, the mm-hmm. training we did in those days. Versus the training we, we are doing with the exact same five players that that came that, that were on our, our 2019. It's much different. When we went back to 2019 and preparing for now, we're looking at the, the 2022 Paralympic Games. We had one player return. And he's now our skip and Steve Amt, a fantastic mm-hmm. player. And joining him on the ice were... Uh, two players that had been on our B team, as well as two players that weren't even on the national B team at the time. Mm. It was an incredibly inexperienced team. Mm. And, and I tell you, we had to teach them basically 
everything that they needed to know about curling from the front end for the, for those inexperienced players and bring them all up together mm. uh, as we were trying to accumulate points to get into the 2022 Paralympic Games. During that, that quad, we had some successes and we had some failures, but we overcame all of those failures and ended up where we are today with a very, very experienced team. I expect this team to do incredibly well over the next four years. It looks like most of them will be staying together while looking forward to, uh, to Italy. Yeah, so, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So our camps today, I tell you what, our, our camps today are, are based upon precision, building upon the strategy, which we can do on or off the ice, repetition, uh, I, understanding that the more difficult type shots, increasing the, the difficulty of our gameplay, if you will, making it a more complex game. That's where we are today versus simply skill development where we were four years yeah. ago. Okay. And in their own home territory, do they do strength training? Like you get them together as mm-hmm. a team, not you know, as a camp, but in their own home in- environment, they obviously have to continue their own sort of training. So is that where a lot of the strength training comes in? It really does. It, it, for our, our national team, we have uh, an athlete from Connecticut. We have uh, one from two of them now from Denver, Colorado, and then a core of players from uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, hmm. get together once a month for approximately four days. So really when we get together, it's team practice. It's time to get on the ice and work on those team skills that, that are so vital in, in, uh, in, in winning the games. Then when we dissipate and, and head back to our homes uh, at home, you're responsible for your physical training. Uh, you're responsible for your continued game-related training, which is mm-hmm. getting out there on the ice and doing your practice throughout the summer physical fitness, which was a, a, that was, that was our real, our real flagship item this summer was really trying to get our physical fitness and endurance up. I think it was a weakness, including myself. Uh, it was a weakness that we had as a team. And we, we spent the summer really concentrating on that aspect as there was no why. So that's a great area. We also mm-hmm. look uh, quite a bit at the mental side. And so you kind of tie it all together. You got your physical fitness. Uh, um, I got this, this, when I put our plan together here for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee this year for our high performance plan, I kind of coined this phrase, mind, body, sport. Mm-hmm. And the mind is the mental side. The body is is your physical fitness and, and nutrition. And the sport is the physical game and the strategy. And that's kind of how I broke down our next four years of developing of, of working on that that platform. Prior four years, a lot of it was on just the sport side. But yeah. now we, we've got to, we've got to become much more broad, and yeah. the, the athletes are doing a fantastic job. And how do you feel that physical fitness that you did over that work that was done over summer? How do you feel that it has helped both you, you know, yourself as a coach? You mentioned yourself that you weren't very strong on the physical fitness side. Why why is that important for you as a coach? I tell you what. First of all, it sets the bar. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big guy, and I tell you what, it it if I'm going to be pounding physical fitness into my athletes, I've got to be the first one to model that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a failure that we had the year before. And again, we were really trying to work on the physical fitness, but, but I think the athletes, uh, this is one of those things where a coach has got to look in the mirror. You mm-hmm. got to model, you got to mm-hmm. model to your athletes, what you're trying to do. So this summer, I tell you what, I hit her hard and that's where I dumped 30 pounds this summer. And, mm-hmm. uh, 
that it's it's going to start with me, and and it did. I, I've the athletes have all followed suit, uh, whether it's on their hand cycles, whether it's uh, weights. Steve is uh, he's big with with working in his gym in his garage and in in boxing out on your uh, racing chairs. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody they they found something that they like, yep, and they determined a baseline of where they're starting, and they set some goals of where they wanted to end up. And none of them really was the goal actually simply to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, the goal was to improve their strength and their physical conditioning. Yep. And what our goal was is you don't have to be strong to curl. You see, mm-hmm. we, we already went through that. But I tell you what, our tournaments, mm-hmm. a tournament goes over eight days. Yep. It's two games a day. And a few of those days, you're going to get a bye. But it, it's just grueling for the Olympics. There, there's no sport that starts on day one and ends on the last day of the Olympics other than curling. Yeah. Some people can say, well, well, hockey does. Well, that's men's and women's hockey. Half is men's, half is women. Same thing for ice skating, but curling. And now with mixed doubles, curling actually starts before the Olympics act technically starts and then ends at about the third or fourth day. And then you end up with the able body. So it's just the, the, the curling competition from day one to day end, whatever that happens to be four or five, six, seven, that's where the physical fitness comes in. It's, we need to be as in tuned on day six as we are in day one. And that's where the physical fitness comes in. Absolutely. And so do you have any common nutrition issues that you've noticed in your program, even though I know you've had a, a fairly substantial shift of athletes in the last quad any common nutrition issues that you see in them related to either the curling or to their impairment well i tell you what the first is this is a a problem and and then maybe it's experienced by all teams i'm not sure but when you go internationally and and you're you're competing for that long of a time you just don't have the foods to eat that you're traditionally used to eating Mm -hmm. Uh, this really is is different when you go to asia uh, we've had, we've had several players throughout the years that have been incredibly picky eaters. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they get into an area where they don't like the food, they don't say they don't like fish, for example, or they don't like the saltier types of foods. You know, they'll live on peanut butter and <laughs> crackers, peanut butter and, and bread for a week for maybe mm-hmm. two, take their macaroni and cheese. They'll take us cans of soup in their suitcase. So the, the, the meals on some of the venues where you go to, it's just food that either may, a person may simply not like that type of food, or it may be foods they're just not comfortable eating. So that is, is a, a big problem when you're traveling internationally. Europe, you know, it, it's, the food may be less flavorable, maybe more flavorful, maybe more spicy, you know, depending where you go, but it's not necessarily all that different from the United States. You go to Asia, it, it can be totally different. Mm. Um, frankly, I love it. <laughs> I really do. I frankly, the Korean food is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Chinese is absolutely wonderful, but it's not for everybody. And, and yeah. so, so from that standpoint, if, if you want to look at that, be an able body issue, or it'd be a, a Paralympian issue, a Paralympic uh, or adaptive sport issue is the same as, is, is planning ahead to ensure mm-hmm. that you have meals that are giving you the, uh, the requirements that you need in the volumes that you need when you need them at the right spot. And it's a challenge. It, it's, that's a challenge. Yeah. And, and I know when I 
you know, when I was working with athletes who were quite limited in their range, one of the things I was always encouraging them to do was to expand their <laughs> their, their food choices and, and challenge themselves because when they get to travel internationally, it is such a big challenge and a lot of people can undo a lot of good work from their training and, and nutrition simply because they can't adapt and manage and be flexible enough to handle those changes in their food supply. You, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. I know one of the big keys that the U.S. Olympic Committee was talking about this last year going to uh, Beijing. And this was, was, was for everybody. It wasn't just for Beijing, but was, was much like you said, it is not only to expand your horizons, if you will, on your food, but also knowing that in, in Beijing, for example, I think the menu repeated itself every five or six days. I, I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was, but, but knowing that the, the advice and guidance was combine different foods together and make, make new, new flavorful treats that you didn't have last week, or you didn't have it for the third meal this time in a row. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's great stuff, you know, go mm-hmm. on over and get some vegetables, get some of your meats, get some of your sauces, put it together instead of eating all three of them separately. Yeah. And it was, that was great advice. It was wonderful advice. Excellent. And I guess, do you, do you feel as though that you have any issues with things like, like hydration or anything, you know, it's a, it's a, ice-based sports so you wouldn't expect that heat was a, a major issue but do you feel as though the opposite happens because they're in a colder environment that perhaps that stops people from drinking sufficiently and therefore they don't necessarily hydrate effectively excellent i tell you you tell you what you nailed something right here you know you talk about the heat is pulling the the you know the sweat it's pulling the the moisture out of your body but i tell you for these these athletes that are working in the cold and the snow it's, it's not the heat that's pulling it, the, the, the moisture out of their bodies. It's the dryness of the air. Mm. Yep. So, so this, this air in, in these curling rinks or in the mountains where you're skiing, uh, in where you're, you're ice skating, that, that, that air is pulling the moisture out of anything that it can get. And that what it happens to be is your body. So, mm. yes, I, I tell you what, it's, you can feel it after about the third or fourth day of going to a competition where your lips now are all starting to chap up mm. and you are dying up. So dehydration is, is an issue. In curling, you, you have the ability to, when you're not delivering your rocks, to go over to the sideboard and you may reach down and grab a quick snack or you may have your bottle of water there. But hydration is critical. It's absolutely critical because of that moisture getting pulled out of your body by that, that bone dry air that yep. is inside these rinks. Yep. Awesome. So yeah, encouraging the athletes to always have that mm-hmm. fluid with them and, and drink consistently. Not It doesn't have to be a lot. It's just the nope. consistency of it. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. You bet. Cool. Keep it going. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So if you were talking to another coach or if you found someone who was interested in potentially being a wheelchair curling coach, how would someone get into wheelchair curling, both in the US and also internationally as far as time? Right. I tell you, our sport is just going gangbusters right now. When I first got into the sport back in 2008, 2009, for example, we could probably seat probably three players on a team. Mm-hmm. And then you're out scratching for two mm-hmm. more. And our recruitment in those days was, was finding people that would meet the, meet the classification. And most visually, you know, you'd be walking down the street and you look for <laughs> find someone in a wheelchair. Matter of fact, our skip 
has got a, a story he constantly tells. But Steve Empt was was on vacation at uh, Cape Cod in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and he was approached by uh, by Tony Colaccio, who was uh, my my associate coach back for the Pyeongchang Games, and. And Tony saw him, saw that he was a physical specimen and went up, talked to him, recruited him into the game. As it turned out, Steve was a basketball player for the, for the able-bodied basketball team for UConn. So, uh, and now this was following a car accident. He was in a chair. So, so that's how we got, you know, huh. how the recruitment was, is find people in wheelchairs and then teach them how to play the that game. Cool. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. You bet. Now, today, what we're seeing is, is two different things. First of all, clubs are really, uh, as new clubs are being built, and this is the key, as new clubs are being built, they're being built with the accessibility in mind. Uh-huh. Yep. Eliminating the stairs, being able to get down on the ice, having the accessible locker rooms, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which you look at these curling clubs that we play with in Portage, Portage Wisconsin, that curling club was probably built and I'm, I'm speculating here back in the twenties, maybe the thirties, mm. we can get our team in and get them out. But the accessibility is, is very, very poor. They now have upgraded with accessible restrooms, but you're still bumping chairs down or up until last year, we're still bumping chairs down to get them on the ice. Last year, they put in a wheelchair curling ramp, made that accessible and it's absolutely wonderful. So today, the two avenues we get is, is the outcome of these clubs that are making their clubs accessible and they're drawing people in and then they're contacting us about, about their athletes. The other side where we're drawing athletes in is recognizing the fact that the adaptive athletes are are looking for sports to keep them busy year round. So for us, pulling in uh, athletes that have got a summer sport, Paralympians, retired Paralympians, athletes that are working through the pipeline to get to the top level and they just didn't make it. And we pull them into our sport through a, a unique process through, a, it's a camp process which we have, we call it our, our national athlete identification camp. And, and its whole role is to pull in those athletes from other sports or other seasons pull them into the game, show them the game and through developing them. Now these are demonstrated athletes. So that's a little bit different. These are demonstrated athletes, teach them the new sport, bam, get them on the team. So between those two areas of recruiting, it it seems to be working really well. Clubs are fantastic right now. Just fantastic. Awesome. So do you have any recommendations for coaches and practitioners who perhaps work with able-bodied curlers and are looking at potentially working with wheelchair curling. What is one of the things that you've learned that you would then pass on as, as a word, word of advice in terms of working with, within wheelchair curling itself? I think the first thing that I would put on that any adaptive athlete, whether they're in a wheelchair, they're not in a wheelchair, they can curl. For us, again, from the national team, it's wheelchair. That's our sport, wheelchair curling. But this whole concept of adaptive curling, which covers everything, is definitely out there. And those people need to be pulled into your club. And, and you know what? The only thing you need to make for these athletes to make the, to help them become successful is you got to make some type of accommodation. Each athlete is going to have a different type of accommodation that you need to make to make them successful. We had one young lady, I'll go back to Portage, and we had an outreach clinic there several years ago. And she, she could walk, but there was a coordination issue mm-hmm. and, and a strength issue. 
But I tell you what, by, by uh, making some adaptations to her, by, by using a, a belt to help hold her up and steady her on the ice, she was able to curl. Awesome. And, and she could hardly walk. Yeah. It was yeah. not in a chair. Um, whether you're, you have a visual disability, whether it's a physical disability, the, the difference between the, the able-bodied coach and what, what once he understands this concept is going to be incredibly successful is just look at that athlete, recognize what accommodation you can help them with to, to uh, overcome their disability. And that, that player can play and mm-hmm. can, can curl. That, that that's number one piece of advice. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Rusty. It's been wonderful talking to you and I really appreciate the, the insight that you've given. Um, curling is such a, I mean, coming from Australia, we're not a big winter sports country. <laughs> and so curling was very foreign when I, I first moved to Scotland. I said, what is this sport? And obviously the ah. Scots are very big on curling. Yes, uh, they are. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, it's the fact that anyone can curl and you can teach someone to curl, I think, you know, opens up that spectrum really widely to, to a huge range of, of potential opportunities. Before you go, though, there's one last question that we have for you, and that's what's your favorite food? What is my favorite food? I tell you what, I'm looking over. I'm going to think this through here, and the name escapes me right now, and and maybe it'll come before I forget, but it's a a soup. It's a seafood soup Mm -hmm. with a light, spicy broth. That is served in Korea, and this is going to sound crazy. It's served in Korea at the at their Chinese restaurant, Jampong. Ah, it's called yep. Jampong. It's fantastic. Mm. Jampong. Jampong. Okay. okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Rusty. I know you know every year is a busy year, and and this is no different. Uh, building up for the next Winter Paralympics. We really appreciate your time and your energy and everything that you've given to the sport. And we wish you all the best for the oncoming World Championships and and Games. Liz, thank you for having me. I enjoyed this very, very much. Well, I don't know about you, but I think with Rusty's encouragement, even I could go out and find a curling rink near me and give it a shot. If anyone can learn how to curl, I think that's a really great message. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and feel free to suggest people that you'd like to hear from or topics that you'd like to hear about. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Ryan Pinney, a hand cyclist who has recently recovered from injury and we'll talk to him about how he's gone about doing that.